The reading this morning is taken from Paul's letter, his second letter to the church in Corinth. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong, or of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now Mia will... Bring us God's word. Thank you. There we are. Can you hear me? Yep, great. Let's pray. Father, as we 
Look at your word. We're reminded that human nature doesn't change. We've been falling out with each other and having misunderstandings for hundreds of years. Thank you, Father, that you do not change. And we pray that this morning that anyone who is struggling with failure would be set free and would see themselves as you see them, as loved and cherished and valued. Amen. Okay, well, for our visitors, just to fill you in on a bit of background there, um, we have been going through uh, in our Sunday mornings a letter that Paul, who was one of the founders of the church, I think we could say, that a letter he sent to a church in Corinth. And it's an odd sort of letter because he keeps referring to things that we're not quite sure what they were. But there was clearly a very difficult incident um, that Paul had had to go in and sort out. And also, he seems to be defending himself against all kinds of false accusations made by psychopathic or insecure competitors. Have we got any managers or leaders here this morning who know what that feels like? Anyway, Paul is um, trying to encourage the church, trying to get them to grow in their faith, and he's writing them a letter. And from that letter today, we're going to look at the subject of failure. And I've got two things I want to say. I think God may um, want to draw the attention of some of us, or perhaps all of us, to at least one of these two things. And they're these. Firstly, not all failure is sin. And failure can actually be your friend. And secondly, all sin is failure. Sin is whatever separates us from God and others, and that is always failure. But guilt can be your friend. Firstly, not all failure is sin. Have a look if you've got that reading in front of you. There are Bibles in your pews. Um, in verses 1 to 5, Paul tells us that although he had done nothing wrong, he was harassed at every turn in Macedonia. I wonder if anybody feels harassed at every turn today. He'd been on a trip to Macedonia and it seemed like a failure. And his plan had been to go to Corinth to join the church there and to sort out the problems, but he didn't make it. But he says that God encouraged him by sending Titus to Macedonia. And in the interim, God was at work in the church in Corinth they realized that they had misjudged Paul and reconciliation was the result. So a failed trip actually resulted in something good. I've been thinking about this recently as I failed something. That's not quite big enough actually, is it? But here on the screen is, uh, for everyone to see, is a result of an assignment I recently did. Now, I'm Hermione Granger. Every time I do those Facebook things, right, which woman are you in Harry Potter? I am always Hermione Granger. And Hermione failed. Um, I failed an assessment there. I've put it up with the assessor's name on so you can uh, help me bless him. <laughs> okay. Now, this is the assessment uh, that I did on the Gideon Project, and failing an academic assessment for me uh, was a new experience, and it was a very damaging experience. It's made me question um, my ability. It's 
destroyed my developing confidence and it's plunged me into despair over the calling I'm trying to pursue. I think the most eloquent way I could put it is that it's really pants. But you know, God is at work in our failures. Um, A number of people, some of you who are here today and know who you are, have offered empathy, support and encouragement. And you know, looking back over the last few weeks, a bare pass in this assignment would have actually been a disaster because it would have kept me hiding away in my cave, reluctant to get out there. You see, failure has forced me to address my own underlying what I would call academic irritability, the things that really fire me up, the things that God is really wanting me to look at in more detail. So failure combined with the kindness of others has enabled me to get out of that cave uh, and to join in with God's adventure just as failure helped Paul to join in with God's adventure. And just as failure helped Thomas Edison, the inventor of the electrical light bulb, uh, had to make hundreds and hundreds of attempts to get this light bulb right, literally hundreds. He had a case full of failed light bulbs. And somebody said, you know, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. You're just failing all the time. And he looked at them with a rather odd look and said, don't be ridiculous. I'm not failing. I'm just learning how not to do it. Failure can be your friend. There's a quote that we've used a few times at Christ Church recently, and I'd like to bring it to you again because it's a very powerful one. It's from the former President Roosevelt, and he said this, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows at the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Powerful words. If we're going to fail, at least do it daring greatly. You know, we might write ourselves off as failures. I don't know where you failed. You might have failed an exam like me. You might have failed your driving test like me. You might have failed in a relationship you might have failed at work, you might be carrying all kinds of regrets, but you know Jesus brings us freedom from condemnation. Which brings me to our second point. Sin is always a failure. Paul had been hurt by the church in Corinth. They'd seemed to trust him, but they'd been swayed by false rumors and by charismatic, cool leaders who got their ear. And they'd really let Paul down, and he told them so. And his letter had upset them, but it had upset them in a really good way. It caused what Paul calls godly sorrow, the sort that brings repentance, that turns you around, the sort that brings reconciliation and healing. I want to highlight the difference between conviction and condemnation, right? They're very different. Godly sorrow is about conviction. Worldly sorrow is about condemnation. 
Godly sorrow happens when the Spirit of God highlights stuff in us that needs fixing. Godly sorrow always results in practical actions to put things right where we got it wrong. When our children fall out, we quite often take them to apologize and to make friends again. That's what it's like. Godly sorrow is what Zacchaeus showed. Some of you will have heard the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He ripped off everyone he met. And one day he encountered Jesus and everything changed. And he said, I'm going to give away half of what I earn to the poor. If I've cheated anybody, I'm going to restore it four times. That is conviction. I wonder if for you there are things you've done that you know have hurt people. And you need that conviction. You need to be able to go and make amends and say you're sorry. You know, our baptism families today um, made some very uh, strong promises. Um, They said that they were going to resist evil in all of its forms and repent of their sins. It's great stuff. You know, the enemy wants to condemn us. He would love to destroy our relationships. He would love to keep us in a place where we feel guilty and rubbish and useless. And today in the baptism services, we've said we're not standing for that. We're not standing for what the enemy wants to do to human beings and their relationships and their relationship with God. You know, a really good way to give the enemy a kicking, confess your sins. I've been reading a book um, recommended by a Roman Catholic friend, and it's called An Exorcist Tells Its Story. It's by a chap called Gabrielle Amroth, who... Uh, was an exorcist. He's now retired. And uh, he says something really interesting. I I know nothing of the world of the exorcist, uh, fascinating though it sounds. But he says that Satan is not really that pleased when he gets sent out of bodies, when he's exorcised. He he really is not that impressed. But what he really, really hates is when people confess their sins. What he really, really hates is when the gospel is preached. You see, they're a reminder that his time is short. His time of causing havoc, of causing wars, of causing disease, of causing breakdowns in relationships, of causing anything that brings you pain is short. You know, church, every week we say a confession. I don't know how you feel about that. Some, some of us maybe don't like liturgy and saying confessions together. But you know what? It's a really powerful reminder, not to make us feel down on ourselves, but it is a reminder to the enemy that his time is short. Every time we confess, there's a reminder that there is forgiveness and Satan's time is short. Godly sorrow leads to conviction. It shows us where we've gone wrong. It gives us assurance of forgiveness and helps us to live better lives in community. That's why guilt's your friend. Guilt helps you see when you have overstepped the mark. Feelings of guilt are signs of conviction that you need to turn something around. But you know, guilt is not meant to be a permanent state. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ Church, you're not very Pentecostal today. I'm going to say that again. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you. Okay, so um, godly sorrow brings repentance, um, but worldly sorrow brings death. It condemns you. It keeps you locked in a cycle of despair where you feel guilty and you can't get out and you're trapped. That is not from God. 
You see, the start that's from God is like this. If you feel guilty, you have to ask, what do I feel guilty about? Be specific. The Holy Spirit is never vague. If he wants to convict us, it'll be something that you can name and probably even date. Identifiable acts. Identifiable thoughts identifiable words, particularly when you're driving. Anybody else? Yeah? Nobody else says words they regret when they're driving. Come on, guys. Don't believe you. (laughs) You know, vague and ill-defined feelings of guilt are not from God. They're from the enemy. He's got an interest in keeping you demoralized, in keeping you feeling bad about yourselves. And he particularly loves targeting perfectionists because we set such impossible standards you know, to the ones with little ones today in parenting, good enough is good enough. You don't have to do the whole Martha Stewart thing. You don't have to beat yourself up. You know, for me, I've had to remind myself that failing an assignment doesn't mean I'm a failure. Your failures do not make you a failure. That's not your identity. My failure doesn't mean that my work among you at Christ Church is useless. It doesn't mean my calling is in doubt. It doesn't even mean that the bishop is going to not give me a job when I've finished here. But you know, you get plagued with these thoughts, don't you? You carry guilt around. And I've been fighting worldly sorrow. And I wonder if there's anybody else here who is carrying guilt, insecurity, and a poor self-image. I wonder if anyone's stuck in that place. I want to end with two paintings. Um, The first is this one. Anyone ever done a painting like that? Um, I remember when my kids were little, they would occasionally get hold of crayons and they would colour somewhere they weren't supposed to, usually the bedroom wall or something like that. Now, I don't know if that's happened to you. I was never best pleased when that happened. But um, did it mean I loved my children less? Of course not. Of course not. You love your children. They are not defined by their wayward moments. And that's exactly what it's like with God. Uh, The final painting is this one. It's from the altar in Wittenberg Church, and it's of Luther preaching. You can see him up there in his little balcony, preaching to the congregation. And as he preaches, they aren't looking at him. He is pointing at the cross Jesus crucified, and the congregation are looking at Christ crucified. You see, when you fail, the enemy wants you to look anywhere except at Christ crucified. He wants you to look in at yourself and think you're rubbish and think you'll never amount to anything and think you've messed up and you can never be happy again. He wants you to look round at one another in condemnation, and he wants you to blame other people for your failures. But you know, Jesus calls you to look at him, because even when you fail, even if you scribble all over his plan for your life, he delights in you. He takes more pleasure in you than you could ever know. And I'm not just speaking to the people who fill these pews every Sunday. I'm speaking to all of you here. Jesus loves you more than you could ever know. And he longs you to be reconciled to him and to other people. You are not a failure. You are loved by the King of Kings. Amen.